I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Prince William vows to build social housing and end homelessness. Acclaimed London housing activist Quajo refuses an MBE. Backlash over the closure of communal barbecue pits in Burgess Park. And how UK homes are becoming lethal furnaces in heat waves. My name is Merlin Fulcher. I'm an architectural journalist and I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's top UK architecture news. Welcome to the Lundown. My guest this week here at Bureau in Design District is Kate Wagner. Kate is an architecture critic and the blogger behind McMansion Hell. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Heir to the throne, Prince William has announced an ambitious bid to end homelessness in Britain, promising to reveal an ambitious five-year plan at the end of the month. In an exclusive interview with the Sunday Times, the new Prince of Wales expressed his frustration with the current approach to homelessness, stating that too much emphasis is placed on managing the problem rather than preventing it. While the full details of the secret project from the Prince's Royal Foundation are yet to emerge, The Telegraph reported that the Royal Heir plans to build social housing on his expansive 130,000-acre Duchy of Cornwall estate. Before ascending to the throne, William's father, King Charles, also famously delved into house building. His traditionally styled Poundbury development in Dorset is 30% social housing and was designed in accordance with the principles of architecture and urbanism as advocated by the king in his 1989 book, A Vision of Britain. Addressing the initial steps of his plan, Prince William stated his intention to start small on his own property with the hope of subsequently expanding the initiative to provide improved living conditions nationwide, particularly for those in need of affordable housing to take their first steps towards stability. He went on, quote, The key thing is making this sustainable. It's all very well doing big gestures, but there's no point if there's no future to it, end quote. According to 2023 data from Shelter, at least 271,000 people are recorded as homeless in England, a figure which includes 123,000 children. That means one in every 208 people in England are without a home. Bringing attention to the often overlooked issue, the prince said, quote, You see more elderly homeless people because that's what we often see on the street. But what we don't see is youth homelessness, sofa surfing, people sleeping in their cars or on a mate's bed. A lot of youth homelessness is very hidden. 
Okay, so Kate, what is this all about? Why is it so remarkable to see the royal family championing the cause of public housing, weighing in like this, um, given the fact the government for decades uh, seems to have been completely unable to overcome these crises? I mean, yeah, I think that this is something that uh, we're going to see a little bit more often because we are living in times of really unprecedented inequality and basically lots of stagnation on really solving these issues. And you're starting to see more and more individuals come out and say, okay, yeah, I think I can solve this. But of course, I think that this is a a systemic problem um, in England and also abroad that doesn't just straddle the uh, inaffordability of housing. It straddles everything from wages to childcare to, you know, just general social safety net instability. And so you can It's, of course, great to build housing, uh, but I think that without moves being made to counteract just general inequality, it will be, as, you know, the prince has said, you know, this will be temporary and you want it to be sustainable. So it's one piece of a much bigger equation, I think. Yeah, it's certainly interesting to look at because obviously on the face of it, it's kind of like, a you know, it's a, it's a media statement. It's a kind of headline grabbing thing. You know, he's the new Prince of yeah. Wales. Here's his first like sit down interview. So it's a chance to like make a splash, grab some headlines, get some discourse going in shows like this. But then it's like, OK, so that's like the Duchy of Cornwall Estates. So I looked into this, like the Duchy of Cornwall Estates has been going for something like 687 years so it's like okay you might be prince of wales now like a few months into the job but like you're representing an institution which has had like centuries to kind of work on these problems so it sort of begs the question like is this a little bit too late and then on the other side of the coin it's like we live in democratic societies which kind of built this whole infrastructure in order to challenge the power of unelected forces like the monarchies across the world or uh, industrial powers and so on and so forth. And like in a functioning democracy, those people should be like, you know, putting the fire on the on the powerful and forcing them to build this stuff or forcing them to do the right thing. And it's just like hilarious. Instead, he's like pushing on an open door, just like, oh, yeah, I can score a, score a few publicity points by like bigging up social housing. And it's like, this is all so wrong. Like you should be like having to yeah. like meet requirements which are being like put onto you by the power of politics which represent people in this homeless situation and it it just seems like it seems like such a balmy outcome i didn't want to say it before but like i think that for me this is a mark of shame you know this is not a good thing that this is what it takes to get this discourse into into the public eye i mean of course there's some history with uh, the royal family and building housing um famously the now king had Poundbury in the 80s, which was was funny when he ascended the, the throne. All of us in architecture who are, you know, not I'm not particularly I don't particularly follow the royal family because I'm American was like I was like, oh, the Poundbury guy is the king now. <laughs> and so it's, it's interesting that, uh, you know, the royal family continues to take a kind of interest in architecture and in and in social housing. I mean, isn't it's true, right, that that 35 percent of Poundbury is social housing. And actually, I'm, I'm not quite sure what that looks like now. I know Poundbury, for example, was a big uh, cudgel in architectural discourse in the 80s about traditionalism and sort of harboring uh, the new urbanism, as it would later be called, and these kind of traditional town planning schemes that uh, were kind of replicated not only in England, but also in uh, the U.S. Let's just say that architecture is always political, right? And 
Poundbury at the time, for example, was a very conservative, even though they had, you know, social housing, it was an architecturally very conservative scheme. And it played into this real kind of revolution that was happening in architecture that meant that, you know, we were looking less away from the mid-century kind of optimism and the big, massive social housing schemes and the, you know, this real advocacy for a modernist safety net. And we were moving more towards kind of this weird traditionalism of like these cute little towns that were built using the classical style. And it was a real shrinkage of possibility in terms of what the future could provide. And so it'll be interesting to see in this respect whether Prince William will follow in the footsteps of the king or whether he'll actually like commit to the promise and build something that would house lots and lots and lots of people, which requires an architecture that you know, the conservative sort of views of the king in the 80s and up until now can't realistically provide. Um, and also the concern, I think, for me is that, I mean, I'm not an expert on the geography of England, but as far as I know, that estate is relatively rural, even though it's huge, it's relatively rural. Like, I'm not quite sure what exactly it's connected to, if it's connected to infrastructure, if it's connected to towns. Um, it kind of feels like you're putting a bunch of uh, dispossessed people in the middle of nowhere. Uh, and is that really helping? You know, if you can't connect those people to jobs, if you can't connect them to, you know, urban life, like what, what's the point here? Funnily, funnily enough, last week, we were actually down in Poundbury with Open City's Academy of British Housing. And yeah, it is like a big chunk of it is social housing. It's tenure blind. You can't spot where which ones are the social homes, which ones are the luxury homes. Um, there's certainly like issues with it. We were hearing from residents that like a lot of people in the affordable housing feel like they're less represented or less included within the community. One of the things they cited was Poundbury has like a massive Waitrose, which which can be quite a pricey supermarket. Um, now, one of the things I just wanted to ask is like, Kate, have you have you had a chance to go down to Poundbury, or have you looked at pictures of it? Do you think any of it would uh, like? What do you make of it? Is it good? Is it bad? In your opinion, would any of it qualify for the McMansion Hell blog, for example? I remember the, the Poundbury fire station was a real uh, point of discourse in architecture and it kind of in architectural criticism circles it kind of became a meme because it's this really you know of course the prince at the time now the king was really extolling just the virtues of this traditional architecture and this return to tradition and this return to traditional british life or some simulacra of what that is uh this kind of nostalgia for for something you know smaller and rural but the funny thing is, is that with all of this really, uh, let's say, bold rhetoric and uh, really impassioned rhetoric towards the traditional, and you look actually at the images of the Poundbury Fire Station, which I think was one of the first of the buildings built, and it's just really a very generic building. It's not particularly classically uh, expressive, I would say. It's just a kind of traditional looking building built with new materials. And so when you contrast the sort of passion of the conservative neoclassical uh, architectural rhetoric and tradition of that time, which was postmodern neoclassicism, with the actual built product, it, 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 the juxtaposition of that really became a meme for years and years and years and years in architecture. But I wouldn't say that there are necessarily McMansion qualities. I, I find it actually quite similar to Seaside, Florida in the U.S., which is, which is a town built on very 
at a similar time built on very similar principles. Is that the Truman Show town? Yeah, yeah, it is. And uh, I find I've been, I haven't been to uh, Poundbury, but I have been to Seaside and I find it very kind of uncanny valley and also not aging well because the materials that were used in the 90s have since been improved upon. I guess when we were there, I I quite like the uncanniness of it. Like, I'm never going to live in Dorset or Dorchester, but if I had to, I'd be like, yeah, let's live in that weird place. Like, this is really crazy, <laughs> you know? Um, I mean, it's certainly weird for England, but I'm thinking, okay, so Prince William says he's going to build some stuff. Okay, interesting. I'm trying to, like, read into the vibe of the guy. Okay, like, what's his style? Like, what's he into? Is he going to go for, like, a Poundbury 2.0? Is every house going to have, like, an Arga, Faro ball, painted door, all this kind of stuff? Um, or is he going to go for like something a bit more eco warrior, um, something a bit more social justice oriented? Like he can he can make whatever kind of statement he wants. I mean, what do you think he's going to do? I have no idea. I think that uh, he could go in either direction. The funny, actually, the really ironic and funny things, and I don't know if irony is like the correct term to use here about all of this situation, is that the same architectural debates that were happening in the eighties when Poundbury was being constructed. Have, have been extremely resurgent in recent years. And they've been more explicitly attached to some very kind of right-wing forces. For example, in the US, like President Trump's, the people he appointed to the board for the arts. You've seen some, some real activist types who are really think, it's not just about traditional architecture, right? Or whether or not we should build in the classical style. It's about that that classical style somehow represents a superior uh, society and with all of the kind of racial undertones that that in entails. And so it's kind of a really tricky situation right now in terms of like making that decision because there is a lot of right-wing interest in architecture. Again, there's another bill in, in Congress right now sponsored by the same guys from the National Civic Arts Society is what they're called. And they are trying to codify in law that all new federal buildings must be built in the, the classical style, which is not really the classical style. It's actually just they're built using modern materials and kind of tack on some columns. It's really kind of embarrassing. You're starting to see this kind of rhetoric also resume in parts of Europe and including parts of England. And so it'll. I think it, the, there's a real potential for it to be a kind of culture war battleground. Uh, in terms of, of architecture, just like it was when Prince Charles, now the king, uh, was was doing this work in the 80s. Well, I think one of the things that's astonishing about this, this story, it broke in the Sunday Times, okay? And it, go, it goes out, usually on a Saturday evening, and everyone's like, okay, that's interesting. And then the next day, the next day, an anonymous source in the government was briefing the media on something very different. So you got Prince William saying, oh yeah, social housing, that sounds good. We ought to build a lot more of that. That sounds sensible. Okay, so he's putting that out there. No caveats on it, just social housing. And then the government, like within hours, is briefing something very different. Okay, they're briefing this line saying that the government's going to introduce a special measure which will prioritise British nationals over migrants when it comes to council housing waiting lists. Like, we all know council housing waiting lists are enormous. They are way longer than they should be because of decades of underinvestment in 
council housing. Currently, social housing like this is offered to people living in overcrowded homes, veterans, homeless people, domestic abuse victims. Um, and they have, like most councils, have a kind of points-based system, right? But this anonymous source is telling LVC um, that they're going to award people uh, British nationals a place higher up the waiting list. And they get this, the quote, this is the quote, social housing is a finite resource. So it's only right we look at what more we can do to ensure UK nationals are prioritised locally as homes become available, end quote. So, Kate, what is this all about? Is social housing really a finite resource, This the way this government spokesperson is saying, hours after the Prince's announcement? Um, is it a finite resource that can be cynically used to pit one group of society against another? Or is it actually just something we need to just get on and start building more of? I personally think that this is disgusting. Um, as someone who lives abroad on the visa system uh, and deals with the in already insane bureaucracy of that in my in life, uh, whether from where I came from or where I live now, you're basically kind of in some way either by your home country or adopted country treated like a kind of suspicious person or some kind of criminal. And that's from like a country like the US. Imagine like what it would be like to come from a less advantaged country. I always say about architecture, we build in a society, right? And architecture is for me, a lens through which we look at the ills and the, the struggles of society. And this is a really great example. Yeah, you're taking something that was originally a really utopian idea and a really uh, generous and modernist and you know egalitarian idea, which is council housing which I'm just 100% in favor of, you're taking that and you're recontextualizing it through just what I would consider petty bigotry and nationalism, which are two of the greatest ills in our world. And you're, you're taking a legacy of something that helped so many people and was so proactive and was so futuristic and full of so much hope and promise and turning it into this disgusting battleground. Um, based on ethnic lines. It's, I think it's personally shameful. And also I think that the solution to this obviously is to is not to create a kind of tiered system of eligibility that is like really nakedly discriminatory. Um, yeah, we just need to build more of it. Like instead of like rationing what we have, we just need to build more of it. That's the answer. Acclaimed housing activist Kwejo Twenaboa has turned down an MBE award from the government on the grounds that Grenfell was, quote, a disaster that should never happen, end quote. This was reported by My London this week. The 24-year-old housing activist from South London is well known for his campaigns advocating for improved living conditions for those residing in inadequate housing. Through his social media platforms, TV appearances and a Channel 4 documentary, Quajo has helped to expose the plight of vulnerable social housing tenants suffering from unsafe conditions, ranging from black mould and leaks to asbestos and rodents. And he's done all of that to an enormous audience. In a statement on Twitter, Quajo said he was, quote, compelled to decline the offer as the crisis, quote, should not exist. He said, quote, so much grief and suffering has happened as a result of the poor state of housing in the UK, with the vulnerable and poorest most ignored. Some living in what can be described as slum conditions. He went on, on the 14th of June 2017, 72 innocent men, women and children tragically and prematurely lost their lives in Grenfell Tower through no fault of their own. A disaster that should never happened. 
end quote. Um, so, Kate, what's this all about? Why is it such a headline-grabbing moment for Quajo to be turning down an MBE? I think he's absolutely right to do it. Uh, maybe that's a controversial statement, but I feel like it's a little bit premature to award somebody this award without fixing the problem. And I think that like refusing the award is a sign that, yeah, you if you really want to honor me, you'll fix this this problem that causes so much suffering in life. I think in some ways that because the conditions that he's posted images of and has raised awareness of are so, I mean, just disgustingly appalling, I can't help but think that giving him an award is maybe in some ways a way to distract from from that reality. It's like, oh, you did this really wonderful thing and like, we'll reward you and then we can move on. That's, you know, this is a very common PR kind of tactic, you know what I mean? I, mean, I don't know what it's like in the States in terms of like how housing and architecture is covered, but in the UK for a long time, there's been a tradition of like anything to do with architectural housing is just sort of like glossy images of luxury homes, like people struggling to build their dream modernist mansion in the countryside. And it's like a total disconnect from reality. What Quajo does as a campaigner is shows people images of the horrific conditions going on in social housing and private rented housing. And this is like those like Victorian campaigners who would like go out and like shine a light on the horrific conditions facing the working classes. Um, and it's like it's almost like a bring it's like that shock of real compared to the kind of fantasy land the kind of mansion world um, that we are too often exposed to I think that's why possibly why it's so powerful I totally agree and also we have the same problem in architectural media in the US and I think actually I would say probably around the world which is that we are focused on this idea of architecture as some kind of art of building separate from everyday life or separate from the conditions of the world and it's simply not. And anytime someone makes a call to action that readjusts that kind of lofty uh, escapism, let's call it, it's a real kind of wake up call. And it makes people very uncomfortable. You know, the architecture world is going around building, you know, lovely estates in the country or houses for celebrities or what have you. Millions of people or hundreds of thousands of people are suffering every day and their suffering is spatial. And their suffering, it occurs in a space. That is also architecture. You cannot separate architecture from any of the issues that, that plague the world, any kind of inequality, any kind of discrimination. Southwark Council has refused to reopen the hugely popular shared permanent barbecue pits in Burgess Park, South London, following their temporary closure during the pandemic. It's understood the decision is a response to fire safety concerns highlighted by the London Fire Brigade, uh, which has attended several incidents at the grills, and also litter concerns. In an opinion piece written in The Guardian last week, uh, previous Lundown guest and the editor of Open City's London Feeds Itself, this is Jonathan Nunn expressed frustration at the local authority for failing to understand the importance of community spaces through this decision. In a bid to reduce the blight of disposable barbecues on public green spaces, which can also cause fires, the council invested in the permanent pits in a section of the park way back in 2011. Jonathan, who's a local to the area, wrote about how immediately successful this was with the local community. He said, quote, The park became home to a thriving barbecue culture, particularly among the African, Caribbean and Latin American communities adjacent to its borders. 
This wasn't a sausage and burgers on a Tesco box, but jerk chicken, large rumps of picanha, ribs, suya, eaten and shared in groups of dozens, end quote. Um, Santiago Pelufo, who is co-director of the charity Latin Elephant, even described the scene as, quote, the closest possible experience to an Argentinian asado in London, and that's an Argentinian grill. The barbecues were cornered off in 2020 as the council attempted to prevent gatherings of people during the pandemic. However, three years on and the site still remains shut to the public with no word on when it might be reopened. Um, This comes as a growing number of public spaces across London and the UK are restricting access to green spaces, including Primrose Hill in North London, which is now closed on weekend nights to prevent what the council claims is antisocial behaviour. Um, So, Kate, what's this all about? Why is this decision by Southwark Council creating so much controversy? I mean, I think it's pretty obvious why. If you want to have a public space, right, and you say that this is public space and it's, you know, funded, it's not public-private space hyphenated, it's public space, and then you police that public and then you restrict that public, then is it truly public space? You know, I think the very question of what is public space and who can use public space, who is considered the public is being called into question here. Of course, that's controversial. Yeah, it, it speaks of like so, so much uh, lack of courage by Southwark. It's like they went and built these things, okay, in 2011. Like it's be- it's just like a decade later and they're like, okay, we're just going to welch on this. We're going to give up. And it's like, okay, if you're concerned about fire, like have you heard of like um, like some buckets of water or like put a hydrant next to it? Um, like give people the means to put the barbecue out. Like it's not that hard. And like, again, like litter, there are enormous numbers of people in London parks having like pizzas and big picnics and so on. What do the parks do? They bring out massive wheelie bins and they put them in the spots where everyone has the picnics. And what do most people do? They just put the litter there. Like, like these are easy problems to solve. These are problems that Southwark Council, any local authority, is very well equipped to solve. Like, where's the emancipatory dialogue? Like, you know, democratic uh, local authorities, it was meant to be there for the people, to represent people's needs, to, like, make the city a habitable place for people. This is the complete opposite. It's like depriving people of their of rights. Of course. Like you said, I think it's really almost comical, the kind of lack of courage that's being solved. What, wheelie bins and water buckets? These are maybe the easiest municipal problems to possibly be solved within. It doesn't cost anything, doesn't require insane infrastructure. It's so simple. Yeah, I mean, it's so clearly obvious that there's something else going on here that has less to do with the actual cited problems and more to do with caving, I think, to some kind of pressure to prevent certain marginalized communities from using public spaces. I mean, do you think if if they were you if the spaces were being mostly used or used in a more raucous way or whatever they want to call it, you know, of course there's some underlying tone thing there, by, you know, Britons, what would the response be? Would the response be the same? That's a worthy question to ask. You know, in, in Chicago, in, in the States, like we have the the parks that we have in Chicago are huge gatherings spaces for the diaspora communities. For example, Humboldt Park in Chicago is a huge center of Puerto Rican identity in Chicago. And they have huge barbecues, huge parades, everything. It's really an amazing and lively piece of culture that has in some ways been appropriated by people who want to sell the neighborhood to investors to. And so that that again gets into like another complicated issue of identity and money. 
Climate scientists have warned that the increased frequency of heat waves could turn UK homes into, quote, lethal furnaces with the potential to threaten the lives of thousands. This is according to an article by iNews this week. Uh, the recent hot weather, which saw an amber alert issued across parts of the UK, highlighted the limited adaptability of infrastructure, also as water shortages and hosepipe bans hit Kent and Sussex. Uh, much of England's housing stock, um, which is designed for the usually temperate climate of the British Isles, is unfit for the extreme heat, which is becoming more common during the summer months, as highlighted by the record-breaking 40 degree centigrade temperature which were recorded last summer. Hannah L. Cloak, Professor of Hydrology at the University of Reading, stressed the UK has to do a lot more to adapt its infrastructure for the changing climate. She said, quote, The UK has millions of homes that were built for the climate of 100 to 200 years ago. They were typically designed with pitched slate roofs or tile roofs uh, to keep the rain out, with chimneys for coal fires to stay warm. Uh, these buildings give our towns and cities a lot of their character, but they are often incredibly badly suited to cope with a 21st century heatwave. Um, she went on, uh, some concrete built flats with no shading and poor ventilation can become lethal furnaces for vulnerable people. If you're elderly or have health problems, especially issues with breathing or your circulation, uh, or if you're a newborn baby, for example, you will be especially vulnerable. That is why heat waves can kill thousands of people in the UK as they did in 2020 and 2022. End quote. Just for some data, the Office for National Statistics recorded 3,271 excess deaths um, that were related to last summer's heat waves. Um, that's 6.2% above the five-year average. And the level of unpreparedness again this year has been highlighted um, when thousands of people across the southeast of England were left without water for days as a result of the recent heat wave. Um, so, Kate... What's your take on this? Um, should UK people be um, a lot more concerned and aware about the potential for their homes to become lethal furnaces? Yeah, absolutely. This is a problem that is going to be spreading all across the world as the world warms. I mean, the best time to think about how we can change our way of building was probably 50 years ago. The second best time is now. The obvious like, kind of panic now in a lot of environmental circles, in a lot of circles in terms of like architecture and the environment, is that the solution to this problem is just going to be air conditioning, which is just going to actually make the problem worse by, you know, heating the world even more. <laughs> and so I think that actually there are lessons that can be learned from these buildings from 100 years ago, which is that you need to build to the climate that you're in. And that requires a kind of different outlook on building than just thinking that technology will solve the problem because at scale, probably not, you know, for example, a lot of houses in Europe, this is a huge culture shock for Americans actually, because in America, everything is air conditioned. It's ridiculous. And it's like air conditioned to just extremely cold temperatures inside. This does not happen in Europe. It doesn't happen anywhere in Europe. And even if something is air conditioned, it's not like, it's not cold in there. And, th and this is one of the things when your body is exposed to heat, um, you need to have um, moments where you can cool down in the day. So one of the big issues in the UK last summer was that it didn't get cold at night. And so your body temperature is high. And then at night, when you naturally get to recover and cool down, it wasn't happening. And we don't really have as many air conditioned environments. So like if you went to work and you spent six hours in a, a refrigerator, basically, that gave your body a chance to recover. But if you weren't somebody who had that opportunity, um, you're really, really at risk. And it's worth looking back to 2003. There was an enormous heat wave all across Europe that killed in France alone, 14,000 people. And a lot of studies were done afterwards and they found 
that the majority of the people who died were elderly people who lived in top floor flats with no access to any kind of outdoor space, often right in the eaves of the roof. You can imagine these sort of French, beautiful French houses with the tiny apartments at the top. And, um, you know, people were baking in there. And, you know, it's an architectural issue. It's also very much a thing that can we can prepare around, just like... Um, you know, we should be preparing around pandemics and other things like, you know, this is a real problem that will potentially kill thousands of people in top floor apartments with bad ventilation. Um, you know, surely some, something something needs to be done. There's more and more research going on in architecture about things like Passive House, for example, which is a, a system of building that heavily regulates insulation, for example, like where it makes the walls are so thick and it's such a low carbon way of building also, which is a bonus, that cool air stays in and warm air is kept out in the summer. And in the winter, warm air is kept in and cool air is shut out without having to use as much resources as a general kind of just plop an air conditioning unit on there. And so the time to start thinking about that, it, this is now, it's like, we can't just like patch up the problem by buying everyone an air conditioner. That's not the, actually the solution. We have to start building in completely different ways. We have to start thinking about heat the way we would think about water, for example. No one wants to have a house that leaks. Recently, the Daily Mail, of all newspapers, Daily Mail has reported um, that the water UK boss, David Henderson, has been blaming wild swimmers and canoeists for pointing out the scale of the enormous sewage problems in UK rivers. Um, so he was speaking to the House of Lords last week um, and it attracted absolute fury online as he seemed to attribute the spotlight on the scandal, not to the sewage being dumped by water companies, but to the increase in the number of people open water swimming. Um, there's something like 389,000 discharges of untreated sewage into rivers, UK rivers and watercourses by water companies in a year. Um, Kate, what do you make of this blame game, uh, which is playing out around water quality? It seems pretty um, extreme to be blaming the swimmers and the canoeists. Oh, uh, yeah, that's pretty ridiculous to the point of comedy, I would say. Um, this is, again, a general case of naked greed and mismanagement. And I think that the obvious solution is to hold these people accountable. I'm not quite sure what the methodology would be to do that in the UK. These are infrastructural problems that are, again, being blamed on individuals, being blamed on individuals for living in apartments that are close too close to the eaves of houses, being blamed by people swimming in the rivers. This is ridiculous. I mean, and I think everyone knows, everyone can kind of see through this as ridiculous and can see that this is a mark of like true incompetence. And there, you get the sense when you read all of these things, all of the things that we've talked about today, that we are hurtling towards a crisis that straddles all elements of the built environment that we are in no way prepared to handle. And so the question is, what do we do about that? Whether it's the water, whether it's public housing, whether it's insulation or keeping houses cool or climate change or any of these things, what do we do about this? And the answer is, is that I don't think the answer is coming from, you know, the royal family building some houses in the countryside. I think that this is going to transpire on the level of collective struggle, just like these things were won in earlier in the 20th century. Um, do you think that like people are just being really nice and that's why we have public housing, that's why we have services, that's why we have the five-day work week? No, that's not how that happened. That's ridiculous. People fought and sometimes even died to have those rights. And so what needs to be said here is that the solution to these problems are not going to come from corrupt and incompetent people. 
Uh, it's going to come from all of us working together and struggling together to be able to build a better world. It has to be in our hands. Absolutely. Okay, we're now on to the culture section. Um, we're entering the season of architecture degree shows. Uh, events and exhibitions will be taking place across London and the rest of the country uh, in the coming weeks. Um, so if you have an interest in built environment, in urbanism, in any of the issues we discuss on the show, um, there's a great opportunity to visit your local architecture school and see all like the cool drawings and like beautiful architectural models. You might even get a chance to speak to some of the students and the tutors and like have some great conversations about cities and urbanism and like all the kind of things we love talking about on the show um here in london where we're recording uh, there's the architecture association their exhibitions opening on friday i think this week uh, we've also got the royal college of art they're exhibiting work from the 30th of june to the 3rd of july at their main campus and also from the 13th of to the 17th of July at the Truman Brewery on Brick Lane. Uh, there's also the Bartlett Summer Show, which uh, is taking place in Bloomsbury between the 23rd of June and the 8th of July. Details for most of these are available on their websites. Um, but in amongst all of this, uh, there's something very exciting, um, which is Open Cities uh, Accelerate program. This is a program that teaches 16 to 18 year olds about architecture, and encourages people to apply to study architecture. Um, it's going to be showcasing the work of the 2023 students, uh, the graduates actually, the people who've just completed the course. Um, and um, it's going to be uh, kicking off with a big uh, launch party actually on Thursday the 6th of July uh, from 6.30 to 9pm at MoCo in Hackney. Um, the exhibition itself will run until Monday the 10th of July, so there's lots of time to see it. Um, but if you're interested in coming along for the opening, you can RSVP via the link on our website. Uh, and also in the same week, uh, Open City is putting on an exhibition of models made by primary school students participating in our architecture in schools program um, the show is over at the conversation corner in Earl's Court and will be running from Wednesday the 5th of July to Saturday the 8th of July again details on our website um, Kay what's your experience of attending degree shows uh, what are they like are you going to be going to somewhere you are right now which is in Ljubljana I think yeah I definitely I don't I was already at some for the uh, school of industrial design uh, here in Ljubljana uh, and gave a gave a lecture there, and uh, I've been to many in the U.S. Um, that it, they happen a bit earlier in the U.S. because school gets out before June, uh, and so I always find them inspiring. I always like to work with students. I'm teaching at uni the University of Chicago in the fall, and uh, really enjoy seeing young people take the these issues into their own hands. And I think that like the visions that they present are so much bigger than the things that happen in the architecture world. And so the question for me as a critic or as an adjudicator is how to keep that spirit alive as long as possible. Fantastic. Well, Kate, it's been an immense pleasure to feature you on the show. Thank you so much. Um, where should our listeners go to stay up to speed on your writing and your publishing and all the important work that you're doing? Is there social media handles they should follow or a website? Yes. So my website is mcmansionhell.com. My Twitter, Instagram, it's all the same. And I also am a columnist at The Nation magazine, and I produce monthly columns there also uh, about the intersection of politics and the built environment. Thank you. Fantastic. Thanks again. Thank you. Ciao. You've been listening to The Lundown, a podcast from Open City made in association with the 20th Century Society and the London Society. 
If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've covered, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which reports on all these issues and many more. To get early ad-free access to The Lundown and to support the important educational work of Open City, please become a friend of the charity today. The link is in the show notes. The Lundown is produced by Poppy Waring and hosted by Merlin Fulcher, Finn Harper, Cyber Chatter and Fran Williams. The editor is Merlin Fulcher. Our theme music is by Chris Zabriskie. Open City is dedicated to making cities more open, accessible and equitable. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.